Welcome back to Pulm Peeps, everyone. Firf and I are so excited to be back with another Fellows Case Files episode, which I think are some of our favorites, where we get to highlight an amazing fellow in training, as well as either our program directors or APDs from various fellowships across the nation. Firf, excited about today? Yeah, definitely. As you said, this is like our my one of my favorite types of episodes to do. We're adding a new stop on our Poem Peeps Fellows Case Files road trip uh, to Pittsburgh. And we have we were just talking before that as the episode was going, like a lot of connections to Pittsburgh, a lot of like former colleagues work there. So we're really excited to be doing this episode. We're joined by two amazing guests. And first we have Dr. Rachel Wojcik. Rachel obtained her BS in biology from Mercyhurst University and her master's in liberal studies from the University of Denver in global affairs with a focus on healthcare. She completed her MD at the University of Colorado and then did her residency and chief residency year at, uh, at University of Pittsburgh and has continued her training in PCCM fellowship. She's a rising third-year fellow. She's keeping very busy. She's doing a master's in medical education. She just shared with us she's working on two curriculum, which sounds like quite a bit. You have your plate full, but I'm sure that'll turn out amazing. It's great to have you on the show today, Rachel. Welcome to Poem Peeps. Thank you guys so much for having me. I know I have learned a ton of high-yield teaching points from this podcast, and I'm excited to contribute to other fellows learning. Yeah, so great to have you on, Rachel. And I think, Barf, when we make our trip to Pittsburgh, we're going to have to time it with some NFL season. I know you're a Bills fan and I'm a Cowboys fan. Hopefully, we we, we get to time it right and and make our way up there. Let's do um, it. Yeah, and we can end and start at Pamanti Brothers. That's the big sandwich place that I've always heard about. <laughs> we'll do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Um, and in addition to Rachel, we're excited today to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Maximus. Stefan is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and is the Clinical Education APD for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program. Steph completed her fellowship at Pitt in addition to obtaining a master's degree in medical education there as well. Steph teaches and directs courses throughout the medical school, residency, and fellowship, and was recently awarded the 2023 Outstanding Subspecialty Teaching Attending Award, Steph. Big congrats for that. We know that you enjoy mentoring trainees in medical education careers and really honored to have you on the show today. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to be on the other side of the podcasting microphone. I'm surprised there's no Ravens fans on your end, though. There is. I think they're ha- it's like half Ravens. <laughs> Yeah, we we try to we. That's my second team now as it goes. Although, don't tell oh. anyone down there that I won't tell <laughs> I get in trouble. <laughs> We're really excited to dive in. Uh, before we do, our standard disclaimer: you can fast forward fifteen seconds if you listen to every episode. But just as a reminder, this podcast is not for specific medical advice. The views we express today do not necessarily reflect those of our employers. And the case we present is HIPAA compliant. We may have changed some details to protect the privacy of our patient. Let's dive into the case. Rachel, it sounds like you have a really cool one for us of somebody you encountered during your fellowship training. So why don't you tell us how this patient initially presented? Sounds great. Yeah, I saw a year old gentleman with a history of idiopathic thrombocytopenia on chronic prednisone, also had a history of tobacco use disorder. He came into the hospital with two to three days of right-sided weakness and some slurred speech. His initial MRI showed a moderate-sized left pontine stroke. A CT angiogram of the neck did not show any evidence of an occlusion, but it did catch the apex of the left lung, and it showed a spiculated two-centimeter nodule. The neuro team was concerned for a malignancy that was maybe leading to a hypercoagulable state and consulted pulmonary for assistance with a biopsy. A few other points worth mentioning in his history is his baseline functional status. 
He requires a walker to get around and does need some assistance with taking a shower and dressing. During a recent visit to his hematologist about two months prior, he noted that he was having more fatigue, malaise, and actually had an unintentional 20-pound weight loss over six months. Concerned for a malignancy, his hematologist ordered a chest x-ray that was unremarkable and a CT abdomen and pelvis that did not show any masses. I know this is a brief history so far, but Christina, what are your initial thoughts about his presentation and how are you building a differential? Yeah, thanks so much for sharing, Rachel. And I know you said it's somewhat brief, but I think you really pointed out some um, things that are I'm thinking about him flagging. So I would say overall, we have an immunocompromised older age gentleman, as you mentioned, presenting with a right-sided weakness as well as acute onset left pontine stroke who was found to have an incidental left apical chest mass. So given that the, the um, constellation of fatigue, weight loss, and tobacco history, I think we're all, the four of us are thinking we need to consider malignancy. However, with a normal chest x-ray two months prior, um, you know, that time course seems a little bit atypical for me. And given his history of ITP and presumed chronic steroid use, would consider him to be immunocompromised due to the impact on neutrophils and would definitely add the infectious bucket to the broad differential, being mindful of opportunistic infections, including all the bacteria, the molds, the yeast. And another important question I want to know is what was the prednisone dose and duration as well as has he been on PJP prophylaxis? And one other thing, I know we don't often see it, but with the history of ITP, I would want to know if he required a splenectomy as part of the treatment as this would increase risk to encapsulated bacteria. And I feel like this is a board question that um, all of us um, have had at some point. Those are um, streptococcus, Neisseria, as well as H. influenza. So other big categories to think about aside from malignancy and infection are the big broad bucket of inflammatory disorders. But that time course seems a little bit atypical for me as well. So definitely getting some clarifying questions, which I'm sure you'll tell us about, Rachel. So yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any more information about the patient you'd like to share. Oh, I just wanted to hop in real quick too. I think the x-ray point is just really interesting. And I was just reading about this. You, I think some question to ask yourself is, okay, you have a two centimeter nodule, it's on CT. You have a normal x-ray from two months prior. And the important question is like, what is that x-ray? Is it a PA and lateral? Was it a portable? It sounds like it was ordering clinic. The sensitivity for an x-ray for the lung cancer, what they'll say is something around 75 to 80%, right? It's not the best, but it should pick up a lot. And if you add a lateral, just adds quite a bit that this would be maybe a new nodule and not an old one. Obviously, an x-ray could miss a a mass though too. So just something to always consider. Sorry, Rachel, you you were going to tell us some more info. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So his past medical history includes hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. He did have a 20-pack year smoking history, but he had actually quit about four months prior to presentation when he was having an abdominal aortic aneurysm repair. Of note, he hasn't picked up any other habits. He does not vape. He lives at home with his wife. He hasn't traveled recently, and he hasn't been around anyone who's been sick. He previously worked as a mechanic, but he's been retired for about 15 years. As far as his ITP goes, he underwent a bone marrow biopsy, which was inconclusive. He unfortunately gets the majority of his care outside of our hospital system, so the timeline is a little unclear regarding his steroid taper. We do know that it was a prolonged taper, and at some point previously, he had been on prednisone 40 milligrams. When he came to the hospital, he was taking 20 milligrams. 
His family, who was providing some of his history, couldn't recall if he was taking his Bactrim. His review of systems was negative for hemoptysis, night sweats, fevers, chills, cough, or epistaxis, and was again notable for the unintentional weight loss. On physical exam, his temperature is 38.1. He was sat in well on room air. Again, he had the right-sided weakness and aphasia with a facial droop. The most interesting exam finding, though, was multiple nodular eruptions across his lower extremities and abdomen, some with central purulence, while others were firm and non-draining. Lastly, his lab work was notable only for leukocytosis with a neutrophil predominance and a white, with a white count of 12.6. His platelets at the time were greater than 100,000. Dave, does any of this information change how you are building your differential diagnosis for this patient? Yeah, totally. And it's so important to have this sort of thorough history and review of systems, physical exam that you noted to really help your thinking with this. You mentioned the smoking. I'm really glad that he quit smoking. Everyone should always be congratulated. That being said, his lung cancer risk is not really decreased in just the four month time. So we would still consider him at a very high risk uh, for lung cancer, given his prior smoking history. 20 pack years, not an enormous amount that we've seen, but certainly enough to increase your risk. We talked about the fact that he had a normal x-ray and that could be reassuring or could be that it's just a thing that we didn't see. And he only had an abdomen pelvis CT, so he might've missed it. The prednisone you mentioned, like he's on real deal doses of prednisone, right? He was on 40 and then he's on ongoing doses of daily. This is definitely enough to cause some immunosuppression and increase your risk for opportunist infections as we were discussing already. You pointed out a bunch of important things on his labs. He has, he's febrile. He's not neutropenic, but he has, he's not, doesn't have a huge leukocytosis either, even on the steroids of this. He has normal platelets. So it's not like I think there's something crazy going on with his ITP at the moment. And then, and certainly the biggest things that are jumping out to me is that he has a stroke. And so I'm going to try to link this in with everything. And then he has this physical exam finding with the multiple nodular eruptions. I am certainly not a dermatology expert by any means. That, that being said, when I hear about this, multiple nodular eruptions with some purulence makes me think, could there be an infectious uh, source that's linking all of these things together, maybe something that affects the CNS and then is contributing to a stroke. Could you have infectious endocarditis that causes lesions on the skin? Certainly there are cancers and leukemias that can have skin findings or cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. All of that seems a little atypical for this. And then he has ITP, he's at risk for autoimmune disease, even being on the steroids, but could this be something like a pyoderma granulosum or something like that. And this is a rheumatologic or autoimmune disease or vasculitis. So these are all things that I am thinking about. We know this patient is immunocompromised. We know they had acute stroke and this left apical mass. I'm sure that we're going to get dedicated chest imaging. But Steph, I wanted to turn to you. If you were a consult attending on this patient, I wanted to know if you had anything else to add to this differential and what diagnostic tests you'd want to make sure were added onto the workup as well as a, a CAT scan. Yeah, you covered a lot of it, Dave. It's these are tricky cases because it's hard to come up with a way to make sure that you're not missing anything. A lot of times these are these kind of like laundry lists of things. And um, I think that's why functioning in a team setting as a consultant, where you put your heads together also with folks like ID or Room, when you start to get the flavor of where this is going can be really helpful um, as we hone in on what bucket to put the patient in. We could break this down by thinking about the long list of pulmonary diseases in an immunocompromised host. But I think the thing that's interesting about this case in particular is the additional detail about the skin lesions and the CNS findings, which in this case is stroke. But 
I think it would be elegant to think about a unifying diagnosis for all three things, but also keep in mind that, of course, one or two of them could always be like true and unrelated. So the buckets to break it down to are like going to be infectious, some kind of rheumatologic vasculitis type process or malignancy. In this immunocompromised patient, we always have to remember the usual suspects are common infections that are going to be present in all the patients, plus the opportunistic ones that are more worrisome in this particular patient with cell-mediated immunity related to the prednisone use. So the bacterial studies that we would check as always, like blood cultures, a good viral uh, panel, as well as thinking about um, viruses like CMV. And then, of course, being really thoughtful about um, all the fungal etiologies, including things like aspergillus, PJP, mucor, which is something that sometimes um, escapes our, our initial thought process. Um, and is really can be catastrophic in these immunocompromised patients. And then certainly the endemic mycoses like histo, blasto, cryptococci, depending on the um, geographic location. Outlier bacteria like nocardia and actinomyces are ones that, again, don't normally come to the top of our mind. But when we're thinking about these rarer cases, it's important for somebody's going to say, think about actino or cardia and you want to beat ID to the punch, right? things like mycobacterium, and then in terms of the vasculitides or rheumatology things, anchor-related vasculitis, sarcoid are a great mimicker of everything because that's a good one to sneak up with CNS effects. And then things like organizing pneumonia, which in a lot of times is a diagnosis of exclusion or something that we get on a pathology report. And then lastly, cancers. In thinking about the pulmonary and skin overlap, I was hoping that there would be some great paper out there that would be like, here are all the things that do pulmonary and skin, but somebody it's ready for someone to write. So if there's someone out there who wants to write that paper, that's ready for you. But things like, again, in the vasculitis room area, things like systemic sclerosis, sarcoid, lupus, EGPA, other connective tissue diseases all can have skin manifestations. And it's important for us to get to know what those look like, because that can sometimes be the earliest presentation of those diseases. Specifically for infections, blasto has a very typical pustular skin manifestation. I saw this a lot when I was taking care of a lot of patients with HIV. So it's something to think about in a large variety of folks who have disordered immune, sorry, immune dysfunction. And they can turn into pustules that end up being necrotic ulcers or these sort of verrucous plaques. And then nocardia, of course. And then lastly, thinking about where, where the pulmonary disease and CNS overlap brain abscesses from either bacteria, septic emboli related to endocarditis. We know that fungal diseases definitely can manifest in the CN CNS, again, aspergillus, mucor, crypto, tuberculosis, which depending on your patient population may be higher or lower on the differential. Rarely vasculitis can present in the CNS, but it's, it's again, something to keep on the list of things when we're starting to look for rare diseases. And then we're used to looking for uh, metastatic disease, for example, in the brain and keeping CNS sarcoid on the differential. So a long list. It can be exhausting to go through these things um, one by one, but I think it's uh, critical that we as the consultants think really carefully about them and make sure that we're not missing something that might change the way that we want to uh, run our diagnostic testing. Awesome, Steph. That was so great just to see how you approach that. And, and as you mentioned, I think it would be great. We all like to have one unifying diagnosis for the various manifestations that we see, but oftentimes it's not related. So making sure we're not anchoring ourselves on that, but um, definitely love the approach. And um, I think you bring up a great point. There is a uh, and skin disease. Uh, we need some more publications on those. So I'm sure some people will be sparked by that need and, and interest. Rachel, though, I'm wondering though, can you tell us um, more about the workup and initial treatment your patient had? Yeah, absolutely. 
similar to what Steph had mentioned, the team kept a really broad differential upfront for this patient given his immunocompromised history. But there was some suspicion that the lung nodule and the skin findings were maybe related. So dermatology was consulted to biopsy the skin lesions before deciding whether or not to have the patient undergo a bronchoscopy, which had been the original consult question. An infectious workup was sent, which included blood cultures, galactamanin, beta-D-glucan, histoplasmosis antigen, and cryptococcal antigen. Sputum cultures with AFB testing were ordered in case he was able to produce any sputum, but he wasn't at that time. And to balance out the inflammatory workup, an ANA, ANCA panel, with PR3 and MPO and anti-GVM antibodies were also sent. He finally did get his CT scan of the chest, which showed a speculated lesion in the apical subsegment of the left upper lobe, measuring 2.4 by 1.4 centimeters, and encased several subsegmental bronchi. The right middle lobe also showed a similar mass-like consolidation, measuring 3.5 by 3.5 centimeters, and there was no hyalur or mediastinal lymphadenopathy, no abdominal nets, and no abdominal lymphadenopathy. For his initial management, he was started on broad-spectrum antibiotic coverage with vancomycin, fipronil, tazobactam, given his immunocompromised state, as well as PJP prophylaxis, which was added pretty early on. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, it sounds like a thoughtful approach to everything, and we have some good steps going forward. You mentioned this question of bronchoscopy that I think often is our console question. Sure. Uh, there'll be a lot of people listening who will get in the same question and wondering how to approach it. The CAT scan is really interesting. We'll definitely post these images because you now have some more info. There's another mass like consolidation. That being said, we still have that normal chest x-ray. There's no lymphadenopathy. So I still, a, a 3.6 times 3.4 centimeter malignancy doesn't pop up overnight. It could be that we've missed it on our prior imaging, or it could be that we have something else going on. So it really makes me interested. And then this question about bronchoscopy is a really apt one. So Steph, this question comes up all the time. Can the patient tolerate it? Is it worth the risk? Can you tell us what we'd be looking for on bronchoscopy in this type of patient and how it might help us? And then would you be considering doing it? Would you do it just with a BAL, a transbronchial, EBIS? How would you approach the decision-making process for this type of consult? Do you all have as spirited conversations in your case conferences as we do about whether or not to bronch the patient? <laughs> so this is always, this is where the art, the art of medicine piece comes in. And there, there are uh, oftentimes multiple right ways to get to an answer for a patient. When we look for a diagnosis, sometimes we do it in a stepwise fashion of thinking about what's the safest for the patient. Maybe we take on some lower risk up front. And then when it becomes more important for us to, to get to the bottom of things or we're not coming up we're coming up empty, then we may advance and go to something that's a little bit more invasive, higher risk. So in theory, you could do something like proceed with a fiber optic bronchoscopy and do a BAL alone and see if you can rule out some of the infections. And then if there's no diagnosis, then proceed with something more invasive like a surgical biopsy. In this case, the location of the consolidative masses is interesting. So I encourage people to look at the images that, that get posted. And that would have played a large role in thinking about the approach for me. The left upper lobe lesion does not have a clear airway heading into it on my review. And it's right up against the mediastinal pleura. So I think the only way to get to that one might have been navigational bronchoscopy, for example. And that would have needed to be mapped out ahead of time. 
the right middle lobe mass essentially does have air bronchograms running right through it. So that one is definitely more accessible by fiber optic bronchoscopy. And in theory, you could do a, a transbronchial biopsy there, although it's a little bit more towards the sort of like larger bronchial central airways. So some risk associated with that. There were no lymph nodes. So EBUS might have been a little bit less helpful here. That would have been really satisfying to have a great juicy mediastinal or hyalur node to go after to give us the answer immediately. The nice thing about getting infection, like signs of infection back on the BAL is that can that could give you your answer immediately, especially if you don't suspect it for being a colonizer. So that's sometimes a question that comes up. You want to be able to rely on your diagnostic testing. One question that comes up is what adjunctive test can we send when we're doing a BAL? We always send BAL galactamanin when we're considering fungal disease. And in fact, I just learned that our lab here can process BAL beta-D-glucan as well. So when you're dealing with pulmonary infection, getting your markers at the source definitely can increase both the sensitivity and the specificity. So especially in this patient, when fungal disease was on the differential, that's something that I would have been looking for. In the end, we're weighing risk and benefits for any invasive procedure, and we have to consider as well the patient factors that contribute and if there's anything modifiable. There are some consensus statements out there, not a lot of great data. So it ultimately comes down a little bit to local culture in your own bronchoscopy lab about what folks the interventionalists will tolerate in terms of patient risk. Here, for example, we use a cutoff generally of about 50,000 platelets and an INR of less than 1.7. And we need to hold things like anticoagulation appropriately in advance of if we're doing especially biopsies of some sort. And naturally, you hope your patient's not on a lot of supplemental O2 so that they can tolerate the sedation-induced hyperventilation and de-recruitment that's going to happen with any kind, of, any kind of moderate sedation. For something like a quick BAL, I would tolerate the patient being on you know, a little bit more oxygen. But if we need a biopsy, it's a longer procedure. It's a more involved case, and it puts them at a greater risk for respiratory failure. So I would definitely be weighing the pros and cons of that procedure versus using alternative markers or less invasive diagnostics up front. And then potentially choosing um, to uh, do the procedure under general anesthesia is sometimes an option in those instances if we think that a bronchoscopic approach is the best uh, option for the patient. I don't know if you all have found more discussion around those things. I'm always curious what folks do in different institutions. Yeah, very similar discussions all the time. I feel like also those group discussions are really interesting to me because I don't know how systematic we are about them. I feel like depending on the mood and who's there, it can be, yeah, we should definitely be biopsying all these people. And you get a different response than if you have a different character, different group, different recent experiences. But I think making the group decision making, especially with some proceduralists there, IP doctors, someone from thoracics can be super helpful so that you make an informed decision, especially like you were mentioning, can I actually biopsy this lesion? Is my yield going to go up at all? Yeah, I love the point that you made about making it a group, dis like not a group decision, but like a group discussion, like along the lines of tumor board style discussions, or we have like thoracic um, case conference where we're, it's with thoracic surgeries there, or interventional pulmonologists are there. And then any pulmonologist who wants to present a case um, and kind of get the audience's participation really involved in who's the best to do this procedure, what's the best path forward for the patient, and what's our plan B, C, D down the line if we don't get the diagnostics that we're looking for. So I think that's a really excellent um, point and something really important to, to prioritize when we're uh, like faced with tough cases like this, that we don't have to make these decisions in a vacuum. Yeah. I should say for my full disclosure, I'm always the person who's like, yeah, bronch them. Like before they're on high flow and before something's going on, like we're going to kick ourselves if we don't do it. So I should put my own full disclosure that I am usually on the aggressive end, but that's probably not always the right call. <laughs>
Rachel, can you tell us what came up going forward from the workup? Yeah, absolutely. So the skin biopsy returned positive for nocardia pretty quickly. Um, he ultimately did not end up getting a bronchoscopy or biopsy, other biopsy, and was quickly started on high-dose IV Bactrim and Meropenem. It was expected that he was going to get about a six-week course of IV antibiotics and ultimately was going to need probably at least a 12-month course of treatment. Thanks, Rachel. And yeah, I feel like myocardia. I've had a patient who was able to expectorate sputum and his gram stain came back positive for it. So definitely don't always need to go with a bronch to get the final diagnosis. And then I think this is a really great thing when we're thinking of skin lesions, definitely asking our dermatology colleagues to do a biopsy because those results result pretty fast as well. And I know Steph brought up nocardia earlier, and I think this was definitely appropriate to consider high on the differential given his chronic corticosteroid use, as well as a history of diabetes that you mentioned, because both making him predisposed to neutrophil dysfunction. And definitely nocardia is going to definitely see that on boards and some instances that I've had with personal cases. It's just something I always remember. Um, but Rachel, I'm sure you spent some time learning about all things nocardia. So hoping you can discuss a few points um, today that all learners should be aware of. Yeah, thanks, Christina. I have, in fact, learned a lot about nocardia since this case. Some really key points that I thought were interesting. It's a gram-positive bacteria. A really important pearl to remember is that it stains weakly acid fast because of the mycolic acid in the cell wall. And when you send a sample to the lab, it's important to tell them that you are specifically looking for nocardia because it has to be run a specific way. Nocardia itself lives just routinely in soil and certain water sources, so it actually is pretty easy to inoculate a patient through the skin or by inhalation. Um, a really interesting point uh, that I thought about was about two-thirds of patients with nocardia are immunocompromised and uh, is a diagnosis we should be considering in patients with HIV, AIDS, solid organ and stem cell transplant recipients, as well as those receiving systemic corticosteroids at a dose of 20 milligrams or higher per day. And I, this one I found most interesting, while Bactrim is part of the treatment for nocardia, the dosing of Bactrim you give for PJP prophylaxis does not prevent nocardia infections in the immunocompromised. Um, and lastly, while the lungs are the most commonly infected site, there can be extrapulmonary manifestations like we saw in this case including cutaneous involvement. Uh, there can also be ocular infections, pericardial involvement, and always need to consider a CNS infection as this is the most common extrapulmonary site. So any patient with pulmonary nocardia, an MRI brain should be obtained to assess for CNS involvement. Unfortunately, our, our patient already had one, but for different reasons. Yeah, Rachel, that's great. I know we did one of our first radiology rounds was pulmonary nocardia, where we in included the brain MRI. So I think such a pearl to notice and tell my fellows pulmonary nocardia, everyone gets a brain MRI. So thanks for bringing that up. So interesting that this patient presented in this fashion and had this and then doesn't seem like a classic that nocardia was involved in his stroke from what you're from what you're saying and from those imaging findings just maybe the stress that he had ongoing in his body with this infection but it's just pretty fascinating those are great points hey steph i was hoping you could walk us through a little bit the treatment approach to nocardia since it's not a straightforward treatment and it's not going to just be our standard cap coverage certainly 
Definitely not cap coverage. So getting the diagnosis is important here. <laughs> so there's a variety of resistance patterns, which drives folks to usually cover with two to three agents in severe disease. Um, but for mild, so sort of, you can imagine if he had only cutaneous manifestation, they would have been able to get away with just monotherapy. Bactrim is the mainstay of therapy. Uh, in fact, if someone is allergic, it's actually worth desensitizing them because it's such an important component to the to the therapeutic approach. And it's also okay to continue to use Bactrim even if they were on PJP prophylaxis with it prior because that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have resistance related to it. Even for folks who've been on Bactrim longstanding, they don't find that the nocardia resistance patterns are typically affected by that, maybe because the lower dose, um, as Rachel referred to. Uh, oftentimes, Bactrim is paired with additional antibiotics, commonly meropenem or imipenem, depending on allergies. Sometimes our infectious disease colleagues may consider additional agents. I've seen amikacin used, occasionally linazolid, although we know that linazolid has a lot of side effects that make tolerance of it, especially for long-term therapy, really hard. Extended spectrum cephalosporins, beta-lactams, macrolides, quinolones, there are a lot of different options for making up the kind of second and third additional agents in patients with severe disease. Typically, the duration of therapy is quite protracted, and that is in order to prevent relapse. And always patients are started with an IV induction phase, and the length of that IV induction phase depends on the severity of disease. So this is, again, oftentimes these decisions are made in consultation with our um, ID colleagues. So another place for us to do is interdisciplinary joint decision-making for patient care with these tough cases. In an immunocompetent patient, around as Rachel alluded to, about 6 to 12 months of treatment duration, and in an immunocompromised host, about 12 months of duration is uh, typically needed. Thanks so much, Steph. Yeah, and I think definitely worth worth consulting with infectious disease on patients with nocardia. But uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up some of the mo- more general antimicrobials that fellows may be in tune with. Rachel, I'm just wondering, going back to the patient, were you able to follow the patient longitudinally? And if so, how did the case progress? Unfortunately, that patient did end up completing his stroke a couple of days into his hospitalization. And so this meant he was no longer interacting with his family. He was unable to clear his secretions, overall declining. And his family knew that he didn't want to live in a facility and this is not the quality of life that he would be interested in and and opted to actually discharge to an inpatient hospice facility. Well, it's unfortunate, but certainly, of course, sometimes it's the way it goes. And hopefully the family was, you were able to provide some solace and comfort with them and get them to a hospice to pass peacefully. This was a really interesting case to learn about and certainly always expands our minds of what differential to keep in mind and what diagnostic to do. We love doing these fellows case file series. And the best part is just getting to meet you all and and visit other programs virtually and hopefully in person uh, at some point. So we want to thank you for joining us. We always want to expand our network and and love to have University of Pittsburgh in it. And so we'd love to just hear what you guys love about the program, the people that you're training with uh, or working with and, and why Pittsburgh is a special place. So maybe Rachel, we'll start with you. Yeah, I'm happy to. I had such a hard time when I was thinking about this question because there are so many things that I love about Pitt. Um, But I really think my favorite comes down to the people. As a fellow, I really get to know people in leadership and truly I have everyone's phone numbers. I know I can pick up my phone and call if I ever needed anything. I also have amazing mentorship. Thank you. Special thanks to Steph. And I do have to give a shout out to my incredible co-fellows. There is no one else I'd rather do fellowship with. That's great. Steph? 
man, Rachel, you stole my, <laughs> you stole my favorite thing. Uh, I, we have the best fellows. We got to celebrate graduation just last week, which was a really celebratory moment, especially on this, this side of the pandemic. The other thing I really love about Pitt is the ability for those of us that consider ourselves med medical educators to really delve down into that identity and the career development around clinician educators is really uh, growing and has been a really fun thing for me to explore as a junior faculty member. And so the chance that I get to mentor med ed fellows and to collaborate with other clinician educators, not only in our division, but across the institution has been one of the greatest joys of my career so far. That's awesome, Stefan. I think right before you joined Dave, Rachel and I were just going over everyone we know at Pitt and just how amazing they are that have we've crossed each other's paths several times within Palm Peeps as well as without outside of Palm Peeps. Definitely a great community there and just so thankful for both of y'all to be here today. So I think it's about time to wrap up the case and I know we always end with a takeaway point. And today I actually have two. Rachel, I really liked your point about remembering that Bactrim for PJP prophylaxis does not necessarily prevent nocardia infections in the immunocompromised um, host, which I think is really important to remember. And then, Steph, I just wanted to use yours as well. Thinking about if someone has an allergy to Bactrim, given that it's the mainstay, if someone's allergic to it, it's really worth considering getting allergy um, involved and potentially desensitizing them to that, given how important it is. Farf, what about you? Yeah, I wrote those ones down as well. So we're on the, always on the same wavelength, not surprisingly. But another one that I really like and something I'm going to look into is uh, BAL beta D-glucans that I have not used that yet or heard about that yet. Something I'm going to certainly do some reading about after the show. It's more of a, a future directions for me. It's up and coming. I guess it's a new thing. So something to look out for. Yeah, for sure. And Steph, with that, a point that you have? I really love how Dave highlighted the, the value of uh, the sort of interdisciplinary decision-making around the best approach for the patient. So I think that's something for us to always prioritize and to model as faculty and fellows to our teams that, again, we make these decisions as groups and there's no definite one right answer, but we can make the best answer usually when we put our heads together with other folks. Definitely. And Rachel, we'll end with you today. What's um, a takeaway point you want listeners to leave with? As I'm thinking about transitioning into attending SHIP, just like everyone to have really thoughtful, broad differentials up front for our particular patient, his risk factors. So always starting broad and just being really, giving a thoughtful, elegant answer can actually be really helpful in managing the patient. Like Steph had nocardia on the case pretty early and knowing to what to ask the lab for to make sure all of your samples get run accordingly to get to the diagnosis. It's always important and always get a brain MRI if nocardia is suspected. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, this is a great episode. Thank you both again for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you all for listening uh, and uh, thanks for joining us as always. Have a good one.